Hi, Alexander. Good to have you here. Hello, Hardy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so for everybody who doesn't know you, um, give us, uh, yeah, tell us your story. Oh, dear. Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> When you were I'm six years old and... <laughs> okay, okay, that sort of stuff. Okay, I'm 58 years old. Um, I currently live in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, and I'm a philosopher, meaning I write really thick books. I'll, I'll go and get you on and show you what they're like. <laughs> so, you know, you remember books when there were still books around? They look yeah, like this, most right? Most people don't, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. You can read them any way you like these days. But basically, you work on a text like this one. It takes about three to four years to write a book for me and my colleague. We've written five books so far. We're going to start working on our sixth one later this fall. And um, we travel around the world, and we do research, and we do philosophy on basically the digital revolution. And, you know, whatever previous philosophers couldn't have said much about, that's probably going to be our area. So for me, the two things that obsess me the most are the digital revolution, the new way we communicate with each other, how this transforms the world. And, um, you know, the many global issues that come with that. And uh, certainly also, for example, quantum physics, because there's been a huge revolution in physics and cosmology over the last 50 or 100 years. And that fascinates me also. So I do philosophy on those things. So that's my main preoccupation. You could say that. Everything else I do sort of tagged along with that activity. That's what I call, well, you call it your profession or you call it your archetype, but that's what the one thing you, you're most passionate about that you do. That would be philosophy. Then I've done other things too. You can't really do philosophy until you're like 40 years old. I made my debut when I was 39 because it takes years and years of studies to actually be philosopher. Yes, definitely. Um, And uh, that meant that I, I decided to do something different. And from when I was 23 until a few years ago, I also worked in the music industry where I run record companies. I was a music producer, a songwriter. I was even an artist. I played in four different bands. And I spent about 25 years in the music industry and was quite successful, to, to, to be honest about it. Yes. <laughs> so that's also what I'm famous for. I do TV shows in Scandinavia these days. Uh, um, I'm, I'm a juror on Sweden's Got Talent. I was a juror on Swedish Idol before that. It, it's a fun hobby. It's great to connect with more people compared to the specialized work I do when I'm a philosopher. Because philosophy basically brings me into, um, into the world of science and academics and certainly also into uh, business and finance. I work a lot with large corporations on their future strategies and things like that. That's what philosophers actually do. But um, I'm also very happy to sort of do work on television. It's kind of fun to work such, which is a large audience and try to charm them and make that work. So, yeah, and the rest of my life now is like I'm this old man who's been around a while. So I tend to do quite a lot of podcasts and webcasts and they increasingly also become international, which is kind of nice because if you use digital media today, you can have access to a much larger audience if you've got something meaningful to say, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Great. So um, just l let's uh, start right away. So um, I'd love to hear your, your opinion about this. So what are your thoughts on choosing the white career and uh, to future uh, futures uh, prove ourselves? What are your thoughts on, on, on this topic? Okay, the first thing to do is to go to your own drive and desire and find out what you want in life. That's what you do, for example, in the world of psychoanalysis. I'm a psychoanalyst. All oh, sorry, take that again. I'm a psychoanalyst. All 
I can't talk today. Just woke up, Marty. I'm the psychoanalyst. You, you need your coffee. You need your coffee. <laughs> okay, I'll explain. Psychoanalysis is nothing but philosophy applied on a single human being. So imagine you take all the history of philosophy, all the wisdom out there, and apply it on you. You sit down with a psychoanalyst, and you apply everything philosophers deal with on you and your life. That's what you do when you go through psychoanalysis. It's very different from psychotherapy. That's basically fixing yourself so you can be a happy person and not be sad or whatever. But psychoanalysis is like a brutal, honest confrontation with your own potentiality as a human being, which is why I love it. So this is essentially a psychoanalytical question. How do you decide, first of all, what you want in life? Well, you go to your own drives and desires and you start mapping them. You're probably going to discover that you're located somewhere between your drive and your desire. So you have to deal with them both. That's why you have a super ego and an ego and an id, as Freud says. The id is essentially what's inside of you that wants things like you're hungry or you're horny and things like that. Or you're motivated and get ahead of other guys and compete or you want to collaborate. All those things are part of the drive. Then the desire is, is, is how language sort of manipulates you. Desire tends to be, oh, I want that girl or I want that guy for that matter. And then suddenly when you get the girl you wanted, you don't want her any longer because you want another girl, right? That's desire. It's very tricky. It's never pleased. Desire will always haunt you, always move you to new places and new ideas. So once you set this you discover that if you don't follow your own drive and your own desire, you're very likely to try to submit to somebody else's drive and desire. Nietzsche talks a lot about this, that submission is very popular among human beings because it's very comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's very comfortable to try to find somebody else as a stronger willpower than you do and then just try to nail it and get popular with that person and get recognition from that person. Now, you're supposed to do that when you're a child in relationship to your parents, in relationship to grown-ups. You're supposed to try to find recognition from them, like an approval that you're, you're doing the right thing. You're imitating the grown-ups in a credit way to so finding your own space, your own expression. But by the time you become a teenager, you need to sort of cut that out, find your own driving desire and be your own person. That's what teenage rebellion, that's what the rite of passage that most cultures have is all about. So around some time when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you need to solidify your own presence and your own identity and be your own person. And by that time, that's when you need to discover your own drive and desire. And you will discover very quickly, especially if you're a guy, it's more common among men than women. Women can always give birth to children and find purpose. But among guys, it's really important to find your own purpose. So you have to go on that journey to find your own purpose. And that purpose will give you meaning in your life. And this is where archetypes come in. Uh, a lot of the work we do in the new book, Digital Libido, Today is about male and female and also androgynous archetypes. The different types of people, they all contribute to the tribe. We all contribute to the community if you find the right archetype. So finding your own archetype, your own personality, what kind of man you are, is then essential. You okay. find your own drive, your own desire. You do that to yourself. You remove the willingness to submit to others. You can find your own drive your own desire, and follow that uncompromisingly. And then on top of that, you find your own purpose. And the purpose is always um, a tribal thing. I, I don't, I hate the collective. I hate the individual. I hate individualism. I hate collectivism. I think it's terribly wrong to go in either of those two ditches. You know, it's, it's, we're not individuals as human beings. We're flock animals. But we're also not bound to follow the collective stupidly and submit to the collective. You know, tribal means 
you find your own identity in relation to the rest of the community. And here it's very important to stress that you usually have a primary and a secondary archetype. And the funny thing with the primary archetype that a lot of people mistake is that the primary archetype is something that's usually very easy for you to do, but the other people admire you. So for you, it's just the easiest thing in the world. And, you know, your friends go, wow, you just did that? That would take me tons of effort and years to, to, to practice if I yeah. would ever do that. You just do it, right? That's usually your primary archetype. Now, stay with that. A lot of guys ignore their primary archetype because it's usually too easy for them. So they go for the secondary archetype, which is they can still do the secondary archetype, but it okay. takes much more effort. It's almost theatrical to do the secondary archetype, whereas you do the primary archetype with ease. And the trick is to discover the primary archetype first. This is what you should really educate yourself towards. This is what you should really specialize in. This is the easiest so way. So basically your talent, right? Yeah. If you're going to have a successful career, why make it more complicated than it has to be? If you find your primary archetype and explore that, say you become an engineer, you become an artist, uh, you know, usually professional. Right? If you become your primary archetype or a community role, you become some kind of a community leader or you become a secretary or something like that of a community organization. So anything that's easy for you to do where you contribute to the community, sometimes you get paid for it, sometimes you don't. But if you don't get paid for it, it's still meaningful to you. Once you do your primary archetype, you're set. You're pretty set. You know, you're going to have a good life. And the secondary archetype is also very helpful to explore. It takes more of an effort to do the secondary archetype, but it connects you with people who have that specific archetype, your secondary archetype. They have that one as the primary one. It's often a communicative role you explore in the secondary archetype. And it's also something you do under extraordinary circumstances. For example, you go into the army, you're a military, you become an officer. You train yourself to become an officer. You hope you will never, ever have to do it in your life. But if it, it has to be done, you're the guy to do it. That's a perfect example of a secondary archetype. So, so it's basically a myth to, to fix one's weakness, right? Yeah. To begin with, find your own strengths. Start there. I mean, you're going to start building self-confidence. Never be worried about strengths. Okay. okay. Strength is a great thing in you and in other people. You can always trust strong people. Weakness is the real threat. And when people are weak or perceive themselves as being weak about something and compensate for that and make an enormous effort to look strong in an area where they're weak. So instead of asking others for support, they try to be the strong, independent guy in an area where they're weak. That's when people get dangerous. Always watch out for weakness. When people attack you in, in the wrong way or question you, it's probably because they're weak. Then don't attack them back. Return the attack with trying to find some spot that they haven't seen where they're actually strong and point that out to them and give them, you know, give them some support in that area and they'll be shocked. And suddenly you turn them over from an enemy to a friend. So always work on strength and start with yourself, because if you worked on your own strong characteristics, you worked on your own primary archetype, you can deal with the shit in your life as well. You can deal with your weaknesses. You don't find it threatening to deal with them. I think this is awesome because um, society uh, has it backwards, right? Like, yeah, everyone is talking about fixing one's weakness, and it's always about uh, getting better at, at, at things you are bad at or, or, or suck at. And um, 
it, it, it seems like nonsense, right? <laughs> I can give an example. Guys your age that I meet all the time, and they usually have two concerns. One is their mind. What's going on in the brain? You know, how about education? How about learning things? How about getting yeah. better at what you do here? The other one is the body. Guys spend a lot of time exercising. And guys that don't exercise, I always recommend them to go and find some sports club somewhere and, and go into martial arts. That's a really good start. And then you can do some muscles and things on top of that. But martial arts is usually mentally healthier as well as physically healthier because you actually engage with your brothers. You engage with other men and you, 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 you fight and stuff like that. And you also learn ritual. You learn rules. You learn that the game is bigger than the fight itself, which is very important to learn. But... If I look at a guy and I say, yeah, he looks great. He's got great muscles. I mean, you obviously go to the gym hardest. You're pretty well set, right? So I also <laughs> say, okay, if you got the looks already, you got the muscles already, and going to the gym several times a week is not a problem for you, well, that's a strength. You don't yeah. have to make much of an effort. You just do it. Okay. Then probably you're covering up the fact you feel less educated than you should be. You haven't studied as much as you should have. You know, the books around, there's the internet around these days, there's YouTube around. You can learn in so many ways. You don't even have to read books any longer to learn stuff. And then I just say, well, why don't you work on that then? But go to the gym, appreciate the fact you're strong, physical, attractive, whatever, but then work on your mind because you need to work on both. And some guys are just so stuck in their mind. They're so nerdish that they forget about their body. You call them AB people. They like think of the, anything above the throat as A. And anything beneath the throat is B. So they like kind of disregard the B and they get bad health eventually and they don't look that great. And the girls, you know, pass on them in the bars on Fridays because they got there are other <laughs> more hunky guys in there, right? Okay, you need to work on this in that case. It takes an effort, but start with the self-confidence. Start with the fact you've got a brilliant mind. Start with the fact you've read tons of books and you're an educated guy. You've got a good education that gave you a good job and things like that. Build from the self-confidence, and then go into the area that you need to work on. Great. So much more fun. You build from build right. from solid foundation, always. Um, I, I have two things on my mind. One is, um, like, how do people find their archetypes? Because I think, like, most people don't really know their strengths and don't really know what they should do. And um, the second thing is, w what books should young people read? I think like uh, people my age read just garbage, right? Just uh, stuff which is on the bestseller list and uh, nobody will talk about the books in five years from now. And um, yeah, just go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you're very right about the second one. We can start there. A lot of guys read the book <laughs> and everybody else reads, you know? It's just like, yeah, I read Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Nothing wrong about Yuval, it's quite brilliant. But that book is kind of crappy and yeah. a very pop book. It's, it's not deep in any way, okay? The bestseller books are usually bestsellers because a lot of people find them easy to read. They're not bestsellers because they're brilliant. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So um, I was lucky. I was in the music industry and I sold volumes of records for years and made tons of money, to be honest with you. But when I was prepared to do philosophy, I became a very uncompromising philosopher, meaning I write books that are very uncompromising. That means they're tough shit to get through, but they're good. So... So number one, if, you, if you're going to be smart, okay, be nice to yourself. Read something you can actually understand. Start there. And if you read a complicated book, don't jump to conclusions just because you didn't get a certain word or a certain sentence. Actually, you can go to Wikipedia or a dictionary and find out what that word means. You're not stupid. So you can learn and go gradually through something because when you study something carefully, it's going to take some time to do it. 
But then you also get the depth. You get the reward once you've done that. So that's about books. Yes, young guys today spend too much time on computer games. They spend too much time on social media. And a lot of it you do there is just garbage, right? So yeah. It's a waste of time, okay? The way you go to the gym, like, you don't like, stand there. You actually use the machines, right? The same thing when it comes to your own education. You are responsible for your own education. And to become a smart person, yeah, you got to read a lot. You got to read a lot. Great novels is a good way of doing it. If you can do philosophy, fine. If you can learn the basics of mathematics and stuff like that, always useful. If you can learn languages and speak fluently other languages than your own, brilliant. You'll be much smarter because of it. Uh, travel. It's also essential, not just studying, but also traveling, seeing other places, going to other places, making friends around the world. It's a very clever thing to do. You don't need 200 friends on Facebook. You need at least 5,000. Okay? Spread them around the globe and you'll do fine. You'll be successful. That's one of the cleverest things you can do today. So the whole thing about studying, reading books and becoming smart and working on your mind and being focused, finding your drive, your desire, your purpose, all these things you need to work on them. Yes. And the, the effort really will pay off. That's guaranteed. So that's about the books. So the other one, what was the first one? Uh, archetypes. How, Arch how yeah. Okay. About the archetype. Your primary archetype is something you do with ease that still impresses other people. Your secondary archetype is more theatrical, takes more of an effort, but it's something you can do. It's not hard for you. You kind of you can figure out how to do it so you can do it, but it takes more effort. OK, most mistake people do is that they look around and find somebody they look up to, like an heroic character, usually another guy, your own gender, but older than yourself, who's been successful. So you look up to that person and that person is a rock. Now, there's a blind spot in that because if you look up to that person and try to imitate what that person does and do your own version of it, you might be in the wrong archetype because you probably looked around for something that impressed you. Right? Yeah. So you at best end up in your secondary archetype or in no archetype of yours at all. And it becomes fiendishly hard for you to do what that person does with ease. And only people who do their, their primary archetype and are in the flow of the primary archetype are really successful. It, it, there's something about people who are very successful that they're passionate about what they do. They take it naturally, what we call they have the talent for it, right? They have talent for it, they wake up in the morning with passion, and they just want to do their thing. Now, if that doesn't happen too easily, it takes an effort for you to do that, you're probably in the wrong archetype. That means you probably asked yourself what your archetype is, and that is a mistake. Okay. What you do with ease is what your brothers point out to you that you do, or sister for that matter. You know, the people around you who say to you, oh, that's so easy for you to do. That didn't take an effort for you to do, did it? No, 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 I just did it. I just love doing it, right? Okay, archetype. So ask other people to point you toward the archetype. When I studied tribes, for example, tribal life, the original tribe, it's usually the elders, the older men, the older women who've been around, They've, they've, they've been through several generations themselves. They've seen a lot. They've seen people make mistakes and they've seen people be successful. They are usually the ones to point out to you when you've done your rite of passage and you say you're 20 years old and say, okay, now we've accepted you as a grown up man or a grown up woman in the community. You're going to get responsibilities now. You're also going to get your own autonomy. We're going to trust you as a grown up. Okay? It's usually the elders who then say, okay, and by the way, this is the type of man or the type of woman that we think you are. So we appointed somebody older of that type to be your guide. 
That's where we look for mentorships today. Uh, guys between 20 and 30, they ask me for mentorships all the time. They ask older women, they ask older men for mentorships. Like what my parents didn't teach me or, or what I didn't share with my parents, I need to share with somebody else of the same age as my parents that can then guide me towards my archetype. So, so that's the trick. Ask your surrounding, your environment. Ask people around you about your archetype. Don't try to fantasize about it yourself because then you're probably going to run into a much harder struggle than you had to. So basically, um, where people uh, give you compliments for and say, whoa, it's so amazing that you did X or Y and um, you're so good at it. I can't believe yeah. I couldn't do this. These are the comments um, to, to really point out one's uh, archetype, right? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, and they say, oh, God, you look great. Right, everybody wants to get that <laughs> by you, right? You go, and you go. Yeah, but I mean, getting up in the morning, having a coffee and going off to the gym for three hours, that's like the easiest thing in the world to do. Fine, you've got your damn archetype. It's something to do with physical energy. Yeah. Do it. Stay with it. And then allow yourself as a hobby in the meantime to study the books or read poetry and do all those other things that people haven't seen in you yet. And you can develop then a secondary archetype, which is wonderful because you already have your job, you have your career, your profession. You, ha you have that primary archetype the people admiring you that you do so easily so don't 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 create more of a problem for you than you have to and this exactly why it's great to speak about a primary and a secondary archetype because the primary archetype is that where you, where you probably find your profession and where you make money at least initially so you can develop a secondary archetype which takes more time you can say in my case i was nice to myself and went into the music industry because i turned out to be a talented songwriter And I wrote hit songs and number one records and went on tour. And I still did that for years. And it was still my secondary archetype. Because my primary archetype eventually was to become a philosopher. But I knew that would take decades of studies before I had anything meaningful to say. Because I'd actually read my own heroes like Wittgenstein and Heidegger. And even though, uh, even though they wrote really great books when they were young, they regretted their young books their entire lives and had to sort of rewrite them the rest of their careers. Whereas Immanuel Kant, was 55 years old when he debuted. He worked so hard on his philosophy. He was 55. And between 55 and 60, he published everything. He was ready for it. It was all well prepared. And that's why he's such a cohesive, great philosopher, because he's damn hard to get around, because he's a proper thinker who writes brilliantly. So I learned that lesson that my primary architect was one that needed time. And that can be the case. You can still be the clever guy. You can still have sort of philosophical traits, in the work you do. My pop songs were probably a bit too subversive to be number one records, but they were good enough to be number 11 records, and I did fine, okay? Most of them. So that was the way I wrote songs. Um, but once I started in philosophy, I was really in the flow of things, and I was in my primary archetype. Okay, so um, I think this is such a great advice because people really make it harder for themselves than it must be, right? Yeah. Um, so... So we were talking about books and you said a, a good way to start would be novels. Um, like what else do you recommend for, for people in, in, in my age, like being, uh, being uh, in, in, in their early 20s, mid 20s, um, what, what they should read? Okay, what you should read, first of all, always look for what's timeless. Always, always look for something that has had quality for hundreds of years and is still quality today. Okay, if you do drama, you have to do Shakespeare. He's still the most brilliant drama writer ever, 
Okay, if you do novels, the Russian novels are are really stand out because in Russian culture, the novelists are the philosophers. They do the philosophy indirectly. So, say you read uh, Tolstoy, or read Solzhenitsyn, or you read uh, you know any of the great Russian writers. You know that they're brilliant, uh, and and um, that that is a good way, a good place to start. So always start with the Tumblr. Then complement that with guys of your own age, your own generation, write about you and your friends. Because then once you've done the timeless part, you can start looking at what's exclusive for your age and the time you live in. But then you can also place your own experience today of living in a temporary society in a much larger historical setting. And the thing is that people today are obsessed with complexity. For example, there's even a whole field of science called complexity science. And because we live in a very complex world today, we use the digital now, we use the Internet to try to make sense of the complexity because, number one, the digital self is complex, but at least it's built on algorithms. And you've got Wikipedia online that kind of guides you in the right direction. You can, you can just tap in a word, search the word, and actually you get a lot of really clever tips of where to go next. So we try to make sense of the world, but... I think a lot of people who are obsessed with complexity today are forgetting that everything starts somewhere and starts very simple. You learn that from physics, you know, the Big Bang. Okay, it's kind of hard to understand what it was, but it was very, very tiny. Okay, so it, it could be started. It could have been genuinely simple as well. So everything starts with something simple. This is called causality. You know, the, the thing about cause and effect. And always go to the very basics of the causality of something. Like if you build the building, spend a lot of time on building the basement. So, any engineer, okay. any architect, any construction worker will tell you, we spend a lot of time on the basement. So number one, you need to set the ground first. You need to get water out of the ground. You need to do all kinds of things. So you got a solid ground to build on. So you build a solid basement. Once you've got a really good basement in place, you can build the walls and you can build the roof for that building very quickly. Because you can change those afterwards. You can always remove the roof and put another one there. But you can never change the basement. You're very dependent on the basement. The same thing with yourself. The same thing with your body. The same thing with your own mind. Nutrition first, then exercise. It's causality. What you eat first, then you go and train and practice. The same thing with mind. Start simple. Try to find the cause of things. Be curious. Where did this start? Where did things originate? What is life itself if you study biology? What is physics? What is the basics of physics if you study physics? Okay, Periodic table if you study chemistry. Start with the basics and then build from there. That's how you become wise. Don't start in the middle of things. Just don't jump around and hyperlink a text. No, no, no. Go to the basics of the text. If you read a text, just say, why was this book written? What made these two guys spend four years writing this book? What was their motive? Why? Did they write this book? How did they find out that they were perfectly located on the map to be the best guys to write their specific book? And a good book, they probably had that figured out before they started writing. That is causality. So I, I always teach guys causality and then complexity. They're connected. Okay, so basically for, for all of our listeners, people who want to read about economics should read Adam Smith. People who want to read about evolution read Darwin. And 
Exactly. Yeah, you, you start with the guys who were the big names, and they probably were big names for a good reason. And then I suggest once you've done the basics, you jump to contemporary stuff. And then you can go back to where it all started again and go in between and study what happened in between. But by studying, for example, Darwin and then starting, say, Kaufman, uh, evolutionary biology today, you get a grasp of the whole field from the beginning to where it's at. And then you can study anything in between. Okay, so so I think this is, is so important because people are building the wrong fundamentals and add wrong things then on top of uh, everything, right? Yeah, or they jump online, they read a damn Wikipedia article and then pretend they read the book. <laughs> But you didn't, you know, you read the Wikipedia article, which is probably full of quite a few faults and defects too to begin with. And you obviously haven't read the book, so you don't know what you're talking about. No, no, yeah, the Wikipedia, you use that for stuff you don't have time to read. Again, if you go out in your secondary, tertiary archetype, if, you, if you're not studying your area of expertise, then probably an Wikipedia article can help. It's certainly better than reading nothing. But if you're going to study something really carefully, you need to go into the world of books. That's for sure. Okay, great advice. So um, I want to go go back to the topic of uh, choosing one's career. Um, you like to say that putting together the right team is important. And I also know that you like to say that um, each talent should be complementary. So um, could you please explain this to our listeners? Okay, putting together the right team. I mean, a team is usually, say, about five people. The core team of your project, what you're going to do. Say you start a company or you start something idealistic. Say you want to start, you develop a, a spiritual idea, for example. You always start a team when you do something. So you want to play in a band. You start a team. You start a band. Okay. So get your team together. And always remember this. The biggest mistake when people start a team is that they just pick the guys they happen to be neighbors with. Okay? That is not a strong team. You haven't really thought this through properly. <laughs> you didn't sit down at the drawing board and play, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to build a world conquering team. So I'm going to take my four next door neighbors. And that's it. <laughs> no, not going to happen. Okay. You can, if you're lucky, you get the but Beatles. Come to slow, the right? But you know, most of the time, you don't get the Beatles, right? Most of the time, you get a crappy team. And a sign you pick the crappy team is the fact you start to have a lot of meetings all the time. Meetings are very, very costly. They take a lot of time. And it means everybody has to take off their time from work they're doing to sit down at a meeting, listening to one person at a time. Any organization that I discover that has lots of meetings, bad organization. Great tip. Great tip. Bad organization. You, you, you put together a bad team to begin with. A great team has different specialties, but they share the vision. So you play in a rock band. The one thing you actually have to have in common is musical taste. You have to love the same records. You have to love the same songs. You have to love the same chord sequences. The singer, the drummer, the guitar player, you know, a couple of them can be kind of crappy musicians, but they look great on stage, so you get good posters or whatever. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is not that everybody's an expert musician, because that can get pretty boring, but that everybody has a great attitude and shares the same taste. That means for me, when I work with John Sudeikis, my co-writer, he's, he's a great philosopher, great thinker. He's great at things that I'm not really great at. So we sort of complement each other. But we share the same ideology. We have exactly the same foundational philosophical conviction. We also, when we write a book, have the same conviction of what we're good at and what we need to say. So we share ideology. 
that is important if you're going to do work with ideas. Okay. And if, you, if you're going to do a, build a company together, the same passion. We love the same thing. We love doing the same thing. We want to change the world for the better the same way. And we're probably going to make money because of it. And you share that conviction completely. You share the idea. You're on fire and you're passionate about the idea. And you also understand that we're better than any other team out there doing this. That's what we should do it. Now, if you got that team thing together, spend quite a lot of time with that. Besides building a great team, I also advise spend time on your own style, developing your own style from the way you dress to the way you talk to the looks you like to the way you present yourself to the way you do social media. Spend time on your style. When you're a writer, you spend the first two years only developing your own style. How do we write? What kind of funny words do we use? Where do we take the reader with us and seduce them into something really complex? Where do we make things easier for people to comprehend? How do we flirt with the audience? How do we seduce the reader? Okay, You develop your own style. Once you've got your style set and you share that with your team and you've got a team together that you're on fire about, you're set. You're going to discover when you start working on it, you're going to move very quickly. You're not going to have a lot of meanings. You're just going to go, well, that's your area. You're great at that. And by the way, you're great at that. So you picked that one. And that's the end of the meeting. And off you go. Because you're all specialists. They cover all different angles. That's important in your team. Okay. So basically, um, just uh, put uh, when one should uh, want to start a company, uh, it's very important that all share the same vision or yeah. in the music industry, like um, share, share the same passion for the same music, for the same, they have the same taste and each of the individuals in, in the organization complement each other and everyone is a specialist in their own field, right? Yeah, I call it individuality. I don't talk about individuals in my work at all. I thought individual is like, yeah, it's a solitary person is constantly competing with everybody else. I find it pathetic and I find it tragic. No, human beings love to collaborate and I call people individuals. That means you're dividable. You, you're not a solid unit. You're like, you're one piece, one little piece of gold that can fit into a pattern with other pieces and together you can create a great team. So once you develop your primary archetype, and you become really good at, you know exactly how you contribute in the team. I love it when I walk into a meeting where we're setting a team together, and one of the guys said, well, I'm really good at this one thing. And you can tell he does it with self-confidence. I said, great, then we got that set. That's your role, you take care of that. Yeah, I will, I'll take it on, I'll proudly take it on, it's my responsibility. And you know that guy's gonna be responsible every three months you check in with him that everything's going fine in his department, and that he has the resources that he needs. The meetings are going to be very short. That's exactly why you know your team is successful. Okay, great advice. So um, you also say that one needs a theory of uh, what unites people together and that a group is driven by a fetish or a, an object. Um, could you please explain? Oh, an object, an object. Abject, an abject. Abject. Could yeah. you please explain this to our listeners? Okay, this is very, very important. When you look at spirituality and politics, you discover this is absolutely essential. Okay, you unify the group through a symbol. And in the tribe, that used to be the totem pole. You built a totem pole and then you unified around the totem pole, created some ritual, and you felt unity within the tribe. You could die for each other if you had to. Okay, that's called fetish. So if fetish is a symbol that somehow, when we just look at the fetish or we think about the fetish, we feel united. It magically sort of unites us around something. 
And you can then put the fetish in a certain direction, like the tribe has to move tomorrow. We need to get on the move. We're nomadic. If we stay here, uh, we're being attacked by the enemy or there's no food left to eat or no water left to drink. We need to get moving. Okay. So to get moving, you put the totem pole in a certain direction. And you start talking about the direction and you start projecting dreams in that direction. Like, yeah, we're going to move through those two mountains over there into that next valley. And it's going to be green when we get there and peaceful. And we're going to conquer that valley and we're going to settle there instead. Okay. That, that is, you, you put the totem pole in the direction. That's what the fetish does. That's exactly what you do when you create a team, a sports team, or you create a company. You set out a goal. We're going to achieve this. This is our vision. This is what we're going to be excellent at. So we're going to practice this and do this and build ourselves up towards a goal in the future and higher than we are right now. So it's a direction higher into the future. Now, that is how you build a really good community. The problem is that throughout history, a lot of guys run around and thought, maybe there's a cheaper, faster way of getting people's attention. Now, the trick here is that ever since we had to get away from our mother's tit when we were one year old, you know, we had you know, the most loved thing in the world, sucking your mother's tit was something the most hated thing in the world because you had teeth in your mouth and your dad didn't suck your mama's tit and it was embarrassing to suck your mother's tit. So you pushed away the mother's tit and you turn it into an abject. You turn it into something you actually hate and you're disgusted with it, although you used to love it before because it's no longer part of you. It's like, it's like quitting smoking, you know? The cigarette that was your best friend yesterday, you can only quit smoking by turning the cigarette into a hated object. Objectify it. Objectify, not objective. Objectify the cigarette. Okay. And by simply, by simply being disgusted with the cigarette, no, I'm not going to put that in my mouth. I'm not a damn smoker. It's not me any longer. <laughs> only by doing the objectification of the cigarette can you actually quit smoking. Because you don't even remember the guy you were yesterday was a smoker and loved his damn cigarettes. No, you hate those cigarettes. They're not you any longer. And only through objectification can we do this. So objectification is important for people. It's a, it, it, we have to objectify dangerous animals. We have to objectify tons of shit out in the world that's actually dangerous to us and to our friends. So objectification has to work. But you can also use objectification to get people together. And, and you can just simply find something to hate. Okay, Hitler and the Jew. He wrote Mein Kampf in 1921. He hated the Jews throughout the whole book. He blamed everything on the Jews. He said, if the Jews hadn't been around, the Germans would have conquered the world a long time ago. Well, that was obviously not true. You know, if anybody was civilized in Germany and created wealth in Germany to the Germans, it was the Jews. But, you know, he didn't care about facts. He just said, no, everything is because of the Jews. Okay. That was cheap and easy. And the irony is that 15 years later, Hitler was probably the most popular politician ever because he turned Germany around and got everybody to walk in the same direction simply because they found something to hate. But it wasn't sustainable. And after 11 years of Hitler's terror rule, Germany fell apart and lost the Second World War and 100 million people had died by the time that happened. Huge tragedy. Stalin did the same thing in Russia with the Kulaks. That's exactly why the Ukrainians don't want to share a nation with the Russians today. The original split between Ukraine and Russia happened in the 1930s when Stalin decided that the cheapest way he could unify the Soviet people and be terrified of him and follow his rule was simply by pointing out somebody they would all envy, could all hate. And because the Ukrainian peasants were independent compared to the Russian peasants, they ran their own farms, they ran their own shows, they made their own money. They were called kulaks. He just went for the kulaks in a big way, he started slaughtering the kulaks and starved them to death, exactly like Hitler did with the Jews. 
and it unified the Soviet people. And eventually Hitler and Stalin fought each other and killed, what, 70 million people in between them, right? This is terrifying, but objection has been done so many times in history. And we should always watch out for somebody who says that, yeah, that person of that sexual orientation or that skin color or whatever. If we just hate that person, we'll be unified. Well, maybe you will be, to be honest about it, but only temporarily. And you'll be the most destructive way possible. And you will kill your own soul in the process. You will kill your own soul. You cannot hate somebody else unless you hate yourself as well. And deep down, that's what you do when you start hating people to find unification. So object, objectification is important when used properly and incredibly dangerous when used in the wrong way. Whereas to have a fetish and to wanting to walk off in the future into the direction, build something new, I can only see beauty in that. That's when human beings are at their most beautiful. Okay, so what would you say, like, for instance, in a company, if you have a competitor, And you say to your team, like, oh, we hate this company. They're so bad. And um, what what would be your opinion in, in this case? I would never say that. I would say that let's watch out for the competition. Whoa, they're good. Let's learn from them. Okay, if we find something we're better than them, let's do more of that. And if you find something we're weaker than they are, we need to work on that. Great, the way of competition. That's the way it should be. It's like going up in a ring and do wrestling and you don't have a competitor. You stand there alone. It's no fun, huh? <laughs> That's you need a damn competitor. And you need somebody to, you know, who licks your ass kind of and is just behind you and about to blow past you, right? If not, you're not gonna you're not gonna do your best. Competition is great. But competition is between the teams. It's not within the team. If you get guys within your team that compete okay. with each other for your attention, for example, okay. that's going to be incredibly destructive. Okay. No, the team has to be collaborative. It has to have professional respect between the different specialists. It has to be, the, well, I don't get that, but they do that really well over there. And I respect them highly for it because I do my stuff over here and I do it well. So you collaboration with the team, competition towards the outside world. Okay, I think this is such a great point because people are always talking about their competitors and I think yeah. most people don't really realize the world is so big and like in the music industry you have thousands of artists and, and like uh, in, in the marketing space you have 1,000 agencies and people still can live, a, live a, have a good life. And it's not about the competition, I think, right? No, no, no. Even I do it now. It's like if I write a book like this one, This even a little voice inside of me that says that if another guy writes this very same book, but better than this one and publishes the week before I publish my book, then tough shit. I must have burned this book. Unfortunately, <laughs> though, nobody did write a better book than this one when it was released. So, you know, nobody else does Freud and the digital at the same time the way we do. But, but yeah, you, you should you should actually work on something and somebody else does the same thing better than you. Then humanity is better off. And at the end of the day, you are serving humanity. We all are. We're all serving humanity. That, that's the highest goal we can have. We're not, we're not in this game to get ahead of other people and beat them with dirty tricks and things like that. We're actually in this game to serve humanity. I love this. So, um, Alex, uh, how, how much time do we have left? Oh, it's okay. You can have a couple more questions. Then I gotta got off to my hobbies. Okay. So, um, um, you also talk about the concept of phallic gaze and phallic love. What do you mean by this? Okay, the phallic gaze is the sort of fatherly look at us that we, we're desiring so deeply. And this is common for both men and women. Okay, the matrical gaze, 
um, the gaze associated with the female face is the first thing that meets us in life when we're born. It is usually the midwife, an older woman, older than her mother. It's her smile. When we go through the worst thing that we go through in life, the, the absolutely worst thing we go through in life by far is birth itself. That's why we can't even remember it. Jacques Lacan, the famous French psychoanalyst, wrote a lot about birth as the great trauma, meaning you don't want to remember it. And people talk about rebirthing. I'm just like, no, you don't want to do birth again. Okay, you did it once. You spent the first nine months of your life in a morphine tent. You were perfectly happy. You had no problems. You didn't have a sense of self because you had no problems to solve. We only have a sense of self because we have to solve problems. So you were born. But once you were born, once you get out, there was this sweet, warm, wonderful older woman who smiled at you. And she smiled at you with unconditional love. That means the magical love that we associate with a female body, with a mother's body, or with a grandmother's body when we we're small kids, is the unconditional love that says, I love you no matter what. But that love is also associated with you can be anything you want. All your dreams will come true. <laughs> Which we tell little babies, what the fuck are we going to tell them? They're absolutely helpless, you know? You, you can't tell them, yeah, I'm going to teach you brutal hard realities. I'm going to throw you on a cement floor or something. No, you don't do that with kids, right? You don't. You don't. You just love them unconditionally. The first year of your life, you should have nothing but unconditional love. And that is associated with the female body and the female smile. It's a smile of generosity. That means once we start recognizing there are men around here, you know, or you're a boy, you, you're going to be one of these men one day, or you're a girl, you're going to be attracted to these men one day. Okay. Once we discover that, which is about somewhere between 12 or 18 months into life, it's about when you're about a year old or slightly older, you get to recognize, you have a sense of self, you recognize the genders here, the men and women. We start to associate the male body with what mother wants and can get, and I decide but I cannot have. I cannot be it if I'm a boy yet. It's going to take me 15 years to get there. And I cannot have it if I'm a little girl. It's going to take me 50 years to have a sex drive and fuck boys or whatever. So yeah. that's what Freud said. He says it's called the Oedipus complex or the Electra complex, depending on whether it's about boys and girls. That must function. But after that, the warm smile from the male face, from the fatherly face, is something we desire a lot because it's different from the motherly face. So the magical gaze is just like, oh, welcome to the world. We love you. Okay. <laughs> the father gaze looks first at reality and then it looks at you. So the father gaze is like, it's like we want it because if the father gaze recognizes us, we've really done something well. We've really done something that's worth the attention. Or we might get a chance to perform before the father gaze. And we perform before the father gaze. And the father gaze said, yeah, you've done a good job. You made an effort. Or you, you worked hard on finding your archetype and your specific talents so you can contribute to society. You did find your archetype. You did find your talent. You worked on it. And you're really good at it. Great. You should have a gold star, you know. <laughs> and then you get it from the phallic gaze when the sort of fatherly figure gives you this recognition. It means something because it means you've been approved. It means you're on the right track. It means you do the right thing. You should do more of that. You should stay faithful to that track and work even harder on it, right? So, so you get self-confidence. And, and religion, the way we constructed religion some 5,000 years ago, and we left the different gods and goddesses and started creating monotheism, for example, it was very much focused on the phallic gaze. We have this idea that there's this older man sitting on a cloud, and when everybody else is bored with us, he's still looking at us. But he's also judging us. 
the whole idea of judgment day at the end of life. Okay, you, you started life with a warm grandmotherly smile that welcome you to the world no matter what. You're going to end your life at judgment day. Just going to say, okay, you had your 70 years. What do you do with them? This is the phallic case. Religion is full of it. Philosophy is full of it. Our mental capacity is full of it. We always sort of perform uh, in front of a phallic case. And if we don't find the phallic case, we're desperately looking for it. And this goes for both men and women. We, we want that face that looks at reality first and then looks back at us and give us gives us a grade and says that, yeah, I, I look at reality and this is exactly where I map you on reality. This is what you're good at and this is what you're not good at. And this is what you need to work on and this is what you've done well already. That's the good boss as well. The good boss of a company is your founding case of the company. So we write a lot about it, explore it philosophically. And when Nietzsche says that we killed God and we missed God, what he really meant is that we miss that there's a phallic case that ultimately gives us the attention we want. So we live in a world where we're all fighting for each other's attention today, and it's called nihilism. And it's hard for people to comprehend that because we need to be each other's phallic cases in that case uh, because we need that sign of approval so we know we're on the right track. Um, I love this. So I think um, in the same vein, um, you also talk about the internet and uh, it, it has a matriarchal uh, structure and only rewards, uh, rewards value. I think it's like um, you, you could also explain this for our listeners. Well, the problem with the internet, at least so far, is yes. that it's very matrical and very female in a way, meaning it's very flat. Okay, you're connecting 7 billion people online. And the first thing they do, they're all babies and they're all looking for attention. And they all create their own MySpace account and put the crappy music out there. They create an Instagram account and put tons of babies of cats and you know, pictures of cats and babies out there. You know, people use all the social media and put tons of crap out and they pretend to like it. You know, just because you're my neighbor, you're my friend, I'm going to like your cat picture, all this kind of stinks, you know. So, so. <laughs> It's full of 98, 99% junk posted by untalented people who think they're going to be stars. Right? <laughs> they're up for a rude awakening. That's, and I think that's what's happening today with the Facebook crisis. People are very tired of you scrolling through tons of shit. And instead, they turn to a great Netflix series. It's actually written by somebody talented with talented yeah. actors and a proper budget in it. So because we were longing for somebody to tell us a good story rather than just the crappy stories we had out there. So we're moving into a much more mature internet. And, and I would say in addition to the fact the internet itself is flat and that creates problems um, because we don't know where to go and eventually we're going to find some people that we follow they seem to get the knack of it and they seem to understand what talent is and they seem to have the talent and we follow those guys okay maybe they first become influencers but they just start selling crappy clothes and put ads on the influencer accounts and then we leave them anyway because they're hoarse like a lot of other people are so <laughs> still looking for people we genuinely want to follow who give us good advice and just out of their heart and out of their wisdom give exactly. us some good leaders right so eventually we're going to look for that and and when that second wave of digital arrives so i think the 2020s the next 10 to 15 years are going to be a lot about that quality thing and and then digital will provide us with brutal honesty because we're going to look for brutal honesty we're going to look for the phallic gaze um, so we're going to go to the, the, the positions we find online, the place we find online, and try to be members of the communities where we're giving some real constructive feedback instead of just being told we're wonderful and get likes for everything we do constantly, right? So we need to get away from the, the, the infant state of the internet into a much more mature state of the internet. And this is where the internet is found. 
it is brutal honesty simply because it locks up all the information. It creates a huge memory. The internet is really a huge memory bank. It's like everything that happens around us now memorized, not with our own human brains that can still forget things, but by a memory that never goes away. And this means you cannot bullshit any longer. You have to be factual, you have to be true, you have to find causality, you have to have a proper basement on things you build. That's why I'm talking about this whole thing about count and throw your bullshit out there, but actually go home and write some damn quality in what you do. Well, otherwise, don't post it. And then put the quality out there. And suddenly you create a strong brand around yourself because you're putting quality output out there, which is rare online today. And that's those guys who do that today in 2019 are going to be the winners in 2029. I think the next 10 years will be a rude wake-up call simply because digital will remind you of all the bullshit you put out there. And people will then use algorithms to, to try to find from you what they find valuable. And if you've got valuable quality stuff out there, you're going to see that's going to go through the roof. And all the crappy stuff you put out there, it's not going to happen. I think um, you are 100% right. Because I also think it's about supply and demand, right? You have like one million people who are throwing up bullshit in the internet and saying yeah. the same stuff over and over and over again like yeah and, and, and for example in my industry in the marketing space they they write the same bullshit over and over again and in, in yeah. the fitness industry it's the same like in, in the diet industry and in exercise it's everything is the same so um it, it, yeah, it, it, they call it they call it marketing but the proper word for it is spam yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's funny on Google. Google, Google gave us Chrome, which is a great web browser, very fast and very efficient and very easy to use. Google have done seven or eight wonderful breakthrough things, right? And now they're going after us to use Chrome for using ad blockers. And we're like, what was wrong with Firefox? Maybe we should go back to Firefox again because they didn't bitch about what we did, right? <laughs> you want to go to these open source platforms because they don't bitch about your behavior because these commercial companies, they want to make even more money and be even more greedy. And they hate you for putting ad blockers in there. Well, the reason we put the ad blockers in there wasn't because of the ads. It was because the ads were crap. Yes. Bad ads. They were sad, bad ads, boring ads. They didn't add any value, they didn't entertain us, and they didn't inform us. Now, I call it the infotainment principle. Okay. The infotainment principle that is if you don't provide people with proper solid information, knowledge, or if you don't provide them with some good old entertainment so that they have a laugh or, or they feel engaged. Now, if you don't provide them with any of those two things, don't send the message. Infotainment is incredibly important, especially if you do marketing, because you have to understand that marketing is associated with a company, make a product that's not good enough to get to the top of the algorithm. So when you search for that word, it's not what hits the algorithm first. So they go desperate and spend money on advertising, thinking if they advertise their way all the way up to the top, they're going to get to the top of the algorithm. They probably won't, because the second we press an ad, if we ever do, is because the ad was at least funny. We still don't expect the product behind the ad to be any good. Because somebody was paid to get attention. That's whoring, right? <laughs> really brilliant people just That's make the best product in the world. It's just like, I'm going to make the best possible product or service you could possibly make. And I'm going to associate it with a certain search word. So that people search for the stuff on the search engine. They're going to find me. I, um, if you build the best hotel in Berlin or in Stockholm today, 
You don't have to advertise anywhere. You build the best damn hotel or overnight experience anybody could have. You're going to get five out of five on TripAdvisor. You're going to be number one on the algorithm. You don't have to advertise. You just need to get the first two guests to come and stay with you. They report back. It was a wonderful experience. You cannot have a better Berlin or Stockholm experience than staying at this place. Okay. Okay. You fix the quality. You're going to be number one. You're going to be fully booked. That's how the internet works. Good point. And, and I, I, I can't tell you how many marketing departments I've been through the last 20 years and basically told them, you pay me tons of money to come here and tell you you're going to die. Integrated <laughs> <laughs> marketing, if you know, because I don't, I'm not interested in marketing. I'm interested in genuine communication. And genuine communication starts from a very humble starting point. Like, why would anybody want to talk to me to begin with? Oh, we make a great product here. It actually is a great product. It's the best coffee mug in the world. Why don't we just tell people, we think we created a really good coffee mug. Do you want to have one and try it? That's communication. That has infotainment value in it because it has a great coffee mug. And anything you associate with coffee mugs can be part of that communication. Why don't we make a funny animated movie about coffee mugs having fun together? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So you do infotainment. And, and if you're not entertained yourself, don't ever believe anybody else will be. Don't ever believe <laughs> you're not laughing at, you don't get passionate about it. And somebody else, someone's going to be more stupid than you and think it's funny. <laughs> it's not yeah, going to happen. That's a good point. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Infotainment principle, great principle before you go online. Look at your own, look at yourself. Is this really informative and educational for somebody, or at least is it entertaining? Yeah. Because those are the two things, the information values, all that credibility, and, and the, uh, the entertainment value, we call awareness in our work. We call it attentionalism. The attentionalism principle is what works online. All the algorithms are built around it. They're built around how long people stay on a homepage, if they use its function, if they return, if they recommend it to others, if they give it good grades. People, people through the behavior, people tell what they think about things. And that essentially is the key of digital. I fully agree with this. Um, you you also talk about uh, phallic constructs and netocracy networks. What do you mean by that? Okay, netocracy is a word you used for the past 25 years to describe a new digital upper class. I'll I'll tell you what I'm what what netocracy is. Um, my assistant Peter Taus and I were in Dubai for New Year this year, and we sat on New Year's Eve and interviewed four young Iranian women who lived in Dubai and had huge careers. And they lived in Dubai because they could send their kids to the best possible schools in the world, the international schools in Dubai. And they learned four or five languages before they were 12 years old. You know, these, these were super kids, right? These were super moms and super kids. And they were, they were perfectly happy to move from Dubai to, say, Singapore or somewhere else if they felt that was a better place for them to live. They made tons of money. They could afford to live anywhere they liked. Uh, but they made money because they were digitally savvy. Anything they did was like their smartphones were like tools for them. They were like power tools for them that they used, right? Now, this is the notocracy. These are the people who use the online world to their own advantage because they create value for others. They live with the infotainment principle. They create amazing value for others so they get paid back handsomely for doing exactly that. This is the notocracy. Of course, also the Silicon Valley tech companies are netocrats because they create the platforms they make fortunes out of that we all use. Um, anybody creates a platform on which other people can dance has understood digital. And 
if you then, uh, if you just one of those channels, you do your podcast, <laughs> you do webcast, you have followers, and you do better and better quality in your output and things like that, you you understood it. You understood how to get ahead and how to become a winner in society. That means you become the new upper class, the way the bourgeoisie who lived in the cities and built factories and built parliaments and built academic institutions have ruled the world for the past 400 years. And before those, we had a feudal system. And in the feudalist society, we had landowners and we had kings and courts and we had priests to run churches. So you usually have a triad of somebody produces the official truth. For example, the church or academia. Okay. You have somebody who owns the assets. We call it the real power. They, they, they own the assets of that specific side. Whether it's land ownership or it's capital or it's factories and industries, etc. Those who own the assets, the real power. And we have an imaginary power. Symbolic, real, imaginary. The imaginary power is those who think when we say the word power, like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or presidents and prime ministers and Angela Merkel and, and you know, kings and queens before that. So it's usually a triad of power. And we're going to see a digital triad being developed. The big tech companies that collect the data, data is the new capital. The big tech companies that collect the data and build machine intelligence based on that, it's going to be the companies of Silicon Valley and Shenzhen. And I think Germany and Scandinavia will catch up too and be part of that too. Okay. That's that's the new real power. The new symbolic power are people who sit online and they do podcasts and webcasts and they give YouTube lectures and whatever today. And they try to explain what's going on to people or they write books about digital like I do. Okay, that's the new symbolic power. I think that symbolic power eventually will build monasteries. I talk about digital monasteries in our work and also talk about physical monasteries in our work. I think you have to remove yourself from big cities like Berlin or London, move out in the countryside and sit with other experts and look at digital on its own, at, it, at its own, like, like what is digital, how does it affect us and how can we become experts on it? That's what I've done for years. And hey, I'm getting well paid for being a philosopher these days because digitalization is a huge topic and very few people understand it. That is perfect symbolic power, the people who speak the truth, okay? The third leg is the imaginary power. And that's gonna be the really troublesome one because that's usually the third one to fall into place. And we haven't replaced politics with anything new yet. But I have great hopes for blockchains and decentralized platforms. I work with hackers, especially in Germany. When I go to Germany, I work a lot with hackers to try yeah. to develop new ideas of open source platforms and decentralized networks that are actually more credible than any of the platforms we have today because we could use those to then have, find an arena where important common decisions that we have to make have to make. And I think aesthetically it's not moving anywhere with the next book we're working on. It's to see the planet itself as one huge network and this network somehow has to have something that represents the political aspect of it. Like, what is the imaginary power of this planet? The Internet Protocol was actually built that way. It was built to create a global empire, a global entity. But now we need to trust each other on the globe. And I think the most important thing we have to ask for machine intelligence is for us to be able to love strangers. Blockchains can do that. A blockchain can create a chain of thousands of people that don't even know each other still trust each other completely because they're all tied to this blockchain. That is wonderful. So we can do ethics in a brand new way. We call these ethics of interactivity in our books. And I think this is absolutely key because at the end of the day, we only love people who belong to our own tribe or people who belong to our own subculture online today. And we find it very, very hard to comprehend what people outside of our own community are doing and whether we can trust them or not. 
And if we could build technologies that help us trust strangers, say Uber, the Uber driver is trusted by you, but he also trusts you as a passenger because he will grade you after the experience of having driven you somewhere. Now, we're creating then these meeting points where complete strangers meet and they interact with each other for 20 minutes and they probably never see each other again, but they still part of a larger intelligence. Yeah. And we need the machines to do this for us. We need collective intelligence definitely to do this for us. I call the overall intelligence synthetic intelligence. So mm. synthetic intelligence, the collaboration of human intelligence and machine intelligence to enhance human life on this planet and to make strangers collaborate in increasingly globalized world. I think um, it's great that you follow your own advice because you have something meaningful <laughs> to say that most people, I never heard anybody else uh, speak about this stuff. So <laughs> there are it. a few people who do now. Uh, there are people who've been around for a long time waiting for for the audience to mature to a level where they're actually asking these questions. I think, for example, the current crisis, Facebook, is a very well-deserved crisis for Facebook. And I think people are exactly now asking the right questions. And I'm also terrified of what the European Union are doing right now, in that they're limiting the power of citizens and working in favor of old big corporations. I think that's terrible. I think, I think it's going to kill politics eventually, kill politics and its credibility. And we have to build a new politics, a whole new system for politics, unless the current one actually serves humanity and serves citizens and their needs, specific needs and understands where people are located. Because if we throw too much change on people too quickly and they can't handle it, they, it's going to backfire immensely. Or if politics sides with the old structures, with industry, with large corporations, with lobby organizations, instead of siding with the citizens, people are going to turn against politics as it is now and it's going to be very chaotic. And what is your take on censor, uh, censorship on social media? For uh, for instance, like uh, Twitter banning like big brands or people like Alex Jones with a huge following and and stuff like that. What what is? I say complete no to censorship. I think okay. it's terrible. Complete no. Once okay. starting censoring things, you're gonna censor more stuff next week and then even more stuff next week. I'm an aggressive opponent of the social justice warriors out there. I see Rousseauing it. It's very, very dangerous territory they're stepping into. And especially when they're accusing people of a tonality, of a word use instead of the yes, right. It's That's ridiculous. Even worse. Yeah. Not even Hitler and Stalin did that, for God's sake. It, it's terrible. <laughs> so no to censorship. But it doesn't mean you cannot create more intelligent platforms that encourage people to be civilized and that's the way forward all the people i work with today these decentralized platforms i tell them everywhere don't ever go into censorship that's a minefield allow everybody to speak to open their own accounts but build a platform an algorithm that encourages people to be civilized and actually encourage them to go into dialogue with their very own enemies I learned early on that I'm not going to be a great philosopher by reading guys who agree with me. I'm going to be a great philosopher by reading guys who disagree with me. And sometimes they win me over. And sometimes they're wrong, but they're wrong in a very interesting way. You know, I'm known for hating Plato and hating Rousseau. But my God, those guys wrote well and they're very seductive. And it's damn hard to be an opponent to Plato or being an opponent to Rousseau. But I think today it's absolutely necessary because Rousseau and Plato are the two ditches that we risk to fall into today. Because they both they both encourage you to be lazy and submissive. 
right? Plato, because he's a little boy, having little boy's dreams about the future, instead of being a grown-up man, realizing what reality is like. That's the problem with Plato and Platonistic thinking. Silicon Valley is full of it. <laughs> you're going to go to Mars. No, you're not going to go to Mars. Have you been there? Have you any idea what an effort takes to get there? Have you any idea of the radiation on Mars? No, we're going to send robots and bacteria to Mars and you're going to stay here, Elon Musk, on this planet, you know, because this is what we have to survive now. So, you know, that's Plato for you. And Rousseau is the other one. Rousseau is the social justice warriors out there who feel pity for themselves, turn themselves into victims and bitch and complain about the people's word use. You know, it's. The world's fucking on fire, and you're talking about the word you use somewhere? Yeah, it means no sense. It's so no ridiculous. Sense. It's so ridiculous. Like, so, uh, so we have to be aware of these things and stay focused on causality and complexity. I recommend people, instead of reading Plato, if you can read Aristotle, you're better off. He was the really okay. smart Greek. Um, and then you move forward to the great philosophers um, uh, and the Renaissance. We need the Renaissance even more than we need enlightenment. We need art. We need culture. We need great expression online today. We need great infotainment. A new Renaissance would be all about great infotainment online. That's what we need. So stay focused on the quality of what you do. Be kind to yourself. Find your own archetype. Build a great team. And if you built a great team and done it properly, if you've done your job at the drawing board, it will be effortless to be successful. <laughs> so uh, the last two questions would be, um, what have you learned in the last two years that excite you the most? Uh, one thing I've learned is I never had my own kids, knowing that I'd probably be a mentor one day. And, and what I've learned the last few years is how much I enjoy hanging out with these guys and these girls, 25 years old, and they're like my kids, you know. They have parents, right? But I'm sort of the, the nasty, dirty uncle they didn't have when they grew up. So I can just guide them into their careers where they're going to go next. I can just sit there and say, yeah, I did the same mistake when I was 24. You know what? Get over it. It's not that big a deal. But around the corner, this awaits for you. So, so I love working with these kids and get them on the right path. And it's just something incredibly rewarding to do when you're 58 years old like me. So I'm going to keep doing that for as long as I can. Definitely. I've learned that the last few years how much I enjoy that. And how much I actually enjoyed the fruits of my own work. I was very determined. And I always took the long-term view in, in my own career decisions. And I wasn't rushed or hurried about being successful. I, I'd seen the music industry. So many guys were one-hit wonders. They had one hit song. They were number one for one season. Then they were gone. And I never wanted to be one of those guys. I'd rather build things slowly with quality, deep studies, spend thousands of hours studying stuff and learning things properly. And then when the time would come, people would look around and ask, where's, where's that bar guy? He said something about this five years ago. We didn't hardly notice, but by God, he was right. Where is he, right? And suddenly you discover that the work I did 25 years ago really pays off because I said the right things. I was on the right path already because I was more grounded than other people who said things. Other people just saw a complexity and said something trendy and fashionable. That's easy. No, no. I went opposed to the dominant understanding of what, for example, the Internet was already in 1998. I started giving lectures that were called the Internet is not what you think it is. And it's way more profound than you think it is. Right. So I, I worked and stayed focused, passionate about what I studied, knowing that eventually people are going to turn around and ask people like me. And I'm going to ask people who are even more grounded than me for advice. Quality wins in the end. So, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Last oh, question. 
Hardy, you would be my older brother. I would I would watch your webcast and I would listen to this quirky guy and talking with you about how you find purpose in your life and how you find meaning and how you find your own archetype. I would be obsessed with that when I was 20 years old for a good reason, because you need to find a solid self-identity at that age that you build from. You will still have chances to change direction later in life. But by the time you're 30, you have to be set on your path. You have to have found your primary archetype and you need to be inside of it. By the time you're 30, by the time you're 40, you still have a chance to explore your secondary archetype or some deeper direction that you weren't ready for when you were 20 or 30. Like I did, I became a philosopher when I was 39 because I couldn't be a philosopher 20 or 30. So I developed that deeper archetype when I was 40 years old. So by the time you're 50, forget about change. Give me my damn goose liver and my little port wine. And I'm going to enjoy life. Now, I've worked hard. And I'm going to work hard for another 20 years, but I'm not going to change direction. I'm just going to stay focused on what I do and probably become a boss, you know, something like that. Because my ego is so small by the time you get to 50 that paying back some way is way more important to you than, than having yourself at the center of things. So you become a really good team player by the time you're 50 or so. So you're going to have ch chances to change direction. Don't be too preoccupied with the 20, but you need to make, make your best bet and be kind to yourself when you make your best bet when you're 20 years old. Alexander, I love this episode. It has been so great to talk to you. I love your unique insights and I think you're so intelligent and it's crazy to have you here on the show and uh, thank you very much. Um, where can people work with you, find you on the social webs and stuff like that? The easiest thing is to follow my Twitter account. I've got like 90,000 followers to so follow me. I, 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 I try to be infotainment myself and be quirky and nasty. I like that about Twitter. You know, I, I don't get censored there, so I do that on Twitter. That's the easiest <laughs> thing to follow me there. You can send a direct message to me. You can always send a direct message to me on Facebook if you really have something important to say. But, but I, have to say, I have to add that I do get a lot of messages every day from people who are looking for mentorship and they want to show me something. And, and if, you, if you throw anything at me, it's going to take a lot of time for me to do. Don't do it, right? But I hopefully can put people in the right direction and say that, well, if I can't listen to you now, you can probably go here and find a community or find somebody else that can guide you. So I, you, you can be in contact with me online. I am available on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, that's the best way to connect with me. But do so when you really feel an urge to talk to me. You know, I, I, I'm a philosopher, but I don't I don't call philosophers because I'm starstruck with philosophers to talk to them and be friends with them. I know they're doing their shit. I'm doing my shit and we read each other's books. That's enough. Right. So make friends where you live. Not online. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Hardy. It's been a pleasure.